When we speak of revival, we mean this. When God so moves by His Spirit in His church that the people of God are awakened to the reality of eternal things and a large, usually disproportionate to what is usual, but a large number of people are swept into the kingdom of God over a particular period of time, usually a few years or, or a set period of time. They can usually speak of when a revival begins or ends. So revival is when God moves by His Spirit in His church so that the people of God are awakened to the reality of eternal things, and a large, usually disproportionate number of people are swept into the kingdom of God over a short period of time. Spurgeon, if you ask me to name anybody in the English language who should have received an explosive revival in their ministry, if you were asking my opinion and I got to write a portion of history, Spurgeon should have seen, if we were counting the merits of, of how well they could preach, how much they prayed, uh, the opportunities put before them, the amount of people that would go and listen to them, if anybody deserved a revival, if we can speak of it that way, it was Charles Spurgeon. And yet God never actually saw fit to give an explosive uh, 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 event of a revival as we have just described it. There was, um, <clears throat> it's not because it, he didn't believe in revival, like some reformed guys don't. He did. It's not because he didn't pray for it. He did. He told his people to. It wasn't because he didn't strive for it or preach well enough for it. He had all of those boxes checked. Uh, uh, and in fact, in the 1950s, when there was a revival that was sort of in London and uh, uh, things like that, which had come over from America, we'll see what he said about that later. But, but he was somewhat critical of revivalists, men who would go around and call themselves revivalists, which he thought was just extremely arrogant. And uh, he, would, he would mock the fact that they would get a whole town together, whip them in a frenzy, see people fall over and groan on the ground, and then count 14 people were convicted, 128 people got justification, and, and 300 people received the full sanctification and won't sin anymore, you know, and then whipped up to the next town. He, he would mock that kind of an idea of a revival. But he loved, and he pined for, and he prayed for, and he preached about the, the, the kind of revival that, um, that was what was surrounding the means of grace, and the, the kind of revival that is biblical and gospel-centered. <clears throat> so, uh, over, uh, 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 overarching facts about Spurgeon, he was born in 1834, and he died in 1892. Which, if you can do your maths, he died at the age of 57. He was, he was rushed to an early grave because of uh, his gout, which uh, they didn't have uh, anti-gout medicines back then. He was, he was often just whipped off to France or to the Mediterranean to try and recover from his gout, which is the, the build-up of, uh, of certain acids in the joints which, and, 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 and slow down his, his general health. That, that really took its toll on him. Plus, the enormous weight of all of the ministry that he was doing, the greatest uh, 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 megachurch in all of England at the time. All of those things uh, brought him to an early death at 57. But he was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, in case you're, you're not super familiar with Spurgeon's ministry. He was a Reformed Baptist pastor, often called the Prince of Preachers. And he started his ministry as a pastor. He was doing all kinds of evangelistic Sunday school ministry in his teen years. But does anybody know how old he was when he, gave, when he was called to his very first pastorate? Wrong. 17. Yeah, 17 years old. Just 17 years old. 
That's how old he was when he was called to Waterbeach, which was just sort of northeast of London, up near Cambridge. Uh, he was uh, 17 when he was first called. So uh, there was, before we start the story about Spurgeon's ministry, we're actually going to go back to a gentleman by the name of Dr. Rippon, okay? A killer name. Dr. Rippon. He, he was a very eminent and famous preacher at the New Park Street Chapel, which is what ended up being renovated to become the Metropolitan Tabernacle that Spurgeon led. Before Spurgeon was called to the New Park Street Chapel, there was an eminent preacher a generation before called Dr. Ripon. And between, I believe it was him and the gentleman before him, who I think was Dr. Gill, John Gill, maybe you have John Gill's uh, whole Bible commentary, an amazing uh, preacher. Uh, Between those two men, they pastored the one church for over 117 years. They just had two pastors over the period of 170, took both of them at very young ages, and they pastored right through to their death. But Dr. Rippon would pray often, he would pray for a future pastor to come and greatly increase the power and size of the church that he pastored. They said that he was praying, and he often prayed almost prophetically, as if God had already told him this was going to happen. He would pray for a young man, Uh, 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 who would greatly enlarge the number of the flock and he would frequently pray for him, this, this young man that he saw in his mind's eye. He died a year or two before Spurgeon was born and by the end of Spurgeon's ministry, some of the much older members of the flock would say to him that they are rejoicing to behold in front of their eyes the answers to old Dr. Rippon's prayers. The story of Spurgeon is intertwined with prayer, and it starts long before him. But let's uh, rewind to a time that he is 17 years old. Well, well, let's fast forward. Dr. Rippon dies, and uh, about a a decade and a half later, Spurgeon is born. Sorry, a few years later, he's born, and then uh, when he's 17 years old, he is called. uh, he, he, he He preaches one day at Waterbeach. He preaches there, and the people in this dying, uh, slowing, degrading church, they are amazed at this young boy's preaching ability, and they call him back again and again, and then they ask him to be their pastor, and he is humble enough to to conclude that uh, the people of God need him more than he needs more time to improve. He says, "It's, it's me or nothing. Their church is dying. I will go there and see if God won't do a reviving work. And God did exactly that. It more than doubled in just two years. There was a hundred and something people sort of still uh, uh, floating around the, the Water Beach Church. But by the time the two years had clocked over in his ministry, it had more than doubled. And one day he sits down in his pastor's office before a church service and somebody, one of the deacons, gives to him a letter. And, and it's stamped with London stamps. And, and he opens it up and he reads that the New Park Street Chapel is a church of 1,500 people in beautiful building in central London is calling him to come and trial as their pastor. Come, come and preach for us a couple of times and see if we will call you as their pastor. Now, there was multiple pastor Spurgeons around. So he concluded that they had meant to send it to somebody else. And he put in his response, he goes, I've only been a pastor for two years. Your ex-pastor was Dr. Rippon and his books are in my library. Like his, his hymn book is sitting right in front of me and I'm selecting which of his hymns we're going to sing tonight. Obviously, this wasn't meant for me. My last birthday, I turned 19. I'm sure that you're not supposed to be sending this letter to me. And he sent it back. They sent it back and said, yeah, no, you're the guy. We would like you, please, come and preach. So his first sermon among them uh, was on 
December 18th, 1853, he preached them uh, at, at their uh, church over mu- uh, um, uh, a few months, and eventually they called him, they voted on him, and he accepted the call and moved to London in order to minister there. <coughs> and what he found as he moved into uh, uh, New Park Street Chapel was, uh, uh, was a work of God that was waiting for him. But in the previous years and decades, the people of New Park Street Chapel say that there had gathered clouds of darkness over our congregation and they had become storm clouds that broke with rain upon their souls when Spurgeon arrived. They had had uh, Dr. Rippon who died in 1836, then they had two, two years of no pastor. And then they had Dr. James Smith that they thought was going to be an amazing soul winner and then he left. And then in, uh, they had two more years uh, of Will, Pastor William Walters, but he resigned after a disagreement with some of the, the, the deacons who, who made him think that the people didn't like him. And then the church was diminished and struggling, and there was, uh, they say there was no sunlight appeared, but the Lord had not forgotten his people. In due time, he, pulled them out such a bl- they, he poured them out such a blessing that there was no room to receive it in that church because Charles Spurgeon arrived. So he arrived to them at the age of 19, and he began to preach. Now, to sort of get a picture of the religion in London and England at the time, uh, uh, there's a couple of snippets here that I've taken out from Ian Murray, his book on the forgotten Spurgeon. If I can recommend a couple of books, uh, there is his two-volume autobiography written by his wife, Susanna Spurgeon, who compiled all of his notes and his diaries and his journals and his letters. That's the, that's, the, that's the big ticket item, the two-part autobiography. You can get it for free online or, or, or from a, a Reformer's Bookshop or something. But then also Arnold Dallimore's biography on Spurgeon is tremendous and a lot shorter, just a couple of hundred pages. Anyway, Murray, in The Forgotten Spurgeon, he says, One does not have to look long at the prevailing Christianity of the 1850s in England, to observe that some signs that uh, to, to observe signs that are not at all like what we find in the New Testament, the English religion had become far too fashionable, far too respectable, far too much at peace with the world. The church was not leading. Uh, sorry, the church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. And so when Spurgeon got there, they, they said this, that the Baptist chapel at New Park Street was situated on this, that when they, they, at about a few decades before he got there, or maybe, maybe just a decade, they had moved the building so that they could get a bigger space, and they moved it down street into this scummy, industrialized little cul-de-sac, like where we're built, but, but in, in, in this horrible, smoky, sooty, dirty, muddy part of town. And so that's where New Park Street Chapel now was. And they said that was a picture of the religion of the day. The congregation had a great history stick, uh, stretching back to the 1600s, but now they were left like barges in the nearby mud when the tide was out. Immovable, stuck, and filthy. For some years, they had been in a state of constant decline and the la- in a large and ornate building, which was built to seat over a thousand. It was only ever at most a quarter filled, so 250 people at the most. 
This was the scene that confronted the 19-year-old Essex-born youth when he was first put in the pulpit of New Park Street Chapel on that cold and dull morning of December 1853. And as he started to open the Word of God and lead them in prayer and an example of evangelistic zeal, he began to lead them into what became uh, the, the early years of his New Park Street ministry, which were explosive in their growth. He says that by the autumn of that year, 500 people were in regular attendance at their weekly prayer meeting. So he's, he's doubled their biggest count just for the prayer meetings, not even for the Sundays. He, he, and then they enlarged the building so that they could sit more people and they moved the mezzanines back and they extended the walls and that just wasn't enough. And then uh, it was spoken, uh, this is Ian Murray again, he, he recounts this story where, where, where a, uh, a reporter had caught a Scottish pastor in town because at this point people would line up down the street, they would, they would uh, cramp up the front doors of Spurgeon's uh, church because they just loved to hear his preaching. They didn't care if they could get a seat, they didn't care if it was raining, people would hang in the windows, people would line up outside and there was this Scottish pastor who would come down from Scotland to visit Spurgeon's church one day and he recounts this story to a reporter. He said, <coughs> uh, uh, in 1856, so just a couple of years on, he arrived, he says, with his two friends at about 6 o'clock, and the church was supposed to start at 6.30. But on his arrival, and to his dismay, he found crowds already at the door waiting for admission. He'd almost completely despaired of getting in, but one of his friends went up to a police officer and told him, yeah, they've got police officers on the street so that they can redirect city buses, redirect uh, crowds of people and pedestrians because of how many people there are. And he told the officer that we were in fact ministers from Scotland and anxious to be admitted. The police officer hearing this said very politely that he would allow us to enter the church but could not promise us seats. This was all we wanted. One of us who was a lady, was kindly favoured with a seat. My friend, my, but my, my other friend and myself thought ourselves happy just to be permitted to sit in the window. There was such a dense crowd in the passage down at our feet. I asked a man who was near me if he came regularly, and he said, yes, I come very regularly. And he said, uh, the, why then do you not take a seat? And he said, take a seat. I would love to have a seat. But no one has the, the money to offer to be able to get a seat in here. And so I have to be uh, satisfied to stand. The church, the Scottish minister was told, is seated for 1,500. But what with the schoolroom and the passages and everybody choke full in the corridors, there could not have been fewer than 3,000 people. So they've gone from 250 max on a Sunday to over 3,000 people plus whoever are lined up outside on the streets. And he has this, this passage, this chapter in his autobiography called Labor's More Abundant. And, and he just explains and writes down and, well, his wife does, uh, tells the tales of all of his work. He labored so long and so hard for the ministry of the gospel in this little corner of London. He would preach at least three times on a Sunday. It was a morning sermon, an evening sermon. They had an afternoon sermon, but sometimes he would be traveling for an afternoon sermon. And then he would preach an additional 12 or 13 times in the week. So he would preach uh, uh, five nights uh, always, but often uh, five times throughout the mornings. And then lunchtime uh, sermons here and there as well. Not always at New Park Street Chapel. Often, uh, most of the midweek evenings and many of the mid midweek mornings were away at other churches and other places that were seeking him to preach. And he says that never 
have I ever returned somewhere that I've preached before without receiving multiple stories of conversions from my last visit? The Lord was following this man, and the Spirit was empowering this man so that his preaching would frequently, almost always, result in conversions. We often will, uh, you know, recount, or uh, most of us will be familiar with that hilarious story of the atheistic husband whose wife was, was pleading with him to come to church and pleading with him to go. And he said, just to shut the woman up, I went to church. And he sat there in the church with his fingers, fingers in his ears for the whole sermon, for the, for the whole singing, for all of the prayer. And towards the very end of the sermon, a, a fly started buzzing around him and landed on his nose. And, and he reluctantly moved his hand out of his ear to swat the fly just long enough to hear a phrase come out of Spurgeon's mouth that cut him to the heart. And he was saved that night. Or, or, or when Spurgeon, because the church was uh, enlarging so much, they went and rented the large Surrey Music Garden Hall. And when he was there, he was just testing out the acoustics. I've told this story before. And he, and he, just, he just picks a, his, one of his favorite verses, uh, one of his favorite subjects, which was always on his heart, the Lamb of God. And he simply says loudly, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world to, to just test the, the echoes. And in the hearing of that, a cleaner in a, in a back stall heard it and was saved in that moment. God just followed Spurgeon with a cloud of blessing and everywhere he went, there was, he, he, he had a, a pastor's college towards the end of his life and, and he had a, a student, a man, a pastor who came to Spurgeon to try and be admitted and, and he was asking about fruit and how there's so many salvations going on at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and, and, and Spurgeon says to the man, you know, he, he's complaining, why don't I see that kind of fruit, that kind of souls? Why do I go places and I don't see people saved? And Spurgeon said, Jim, you don't expect that every time you preach, that there are going to be souls saved, do you? And the guy goes, well, well, of course not. That would be rather unreasonable. And he goes, then that is exactly the reason why it doesn't happen. I wouldn't give you any souls saved either if that's the mood that you're going into the pulpit with. It was just a constant expectation that God wanted to save and would use the preached word to do so. So he said, he has this part of his autobiography where he's laughing at his complaining pastor brethren who all complain about some weeks his church makes them preach twice on a Sunday. And sometimes even an additional time throughout the week. And Spurgeon just laughs at them and he, he says how, 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 how he could not sympathize them at all. He does not know what they mean by burning out with so little labor. He says, the more I preach, the more joy I had in preaching. So anyway, eventually, God continues to add people to their church. They make extensions on New Park Street, uh, uh, and they, they spend eight weeks away in Exeter Hall, uh, eight weeks there so that they can do large uh, uh, demolition and rebuilding on the New Park Street Chapel. Uh, and then they extend it because at the end of the eight weeks, they realize we can't move back into New Park Street. We're three, we have three times the people here that we could have back there. 4,000 people are gathering in Exeter Hall. We, and so they, lay, they, they tarried for eight more weeks to use up the opportunity and then were kicked out. So then they moved back to their own uh, New Park Street Chapel. Uh, that was in 1855. So the year after he, he's called it, that's one year in, they need to bust out the walls and extend the place. Uh, 5,000 people would be at the Exeter Hall. Uh, uh, there, there was times throughout this period that he was going around and doing open-air engagements and preaching on hillsides and in, in valleys, and there was times that he was preaching. He counted up to twelve to 14,000 people were in his hearing, unamplified. No microphone, just a guy, his enormous lungs, his cigar-scarred uh, 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 vocal cords, and the Spirit of God. 
In August 1856, they, uh, uh, they, were, they then, st- so this is another year later, they again rented out Exeter Hall, but then also started renting out Surrey Garden Music Hall, for th- and they ended up using that for three years while they turned their one-year-old renovated building, to Park Street Chapel, they demolished that, and they moved it, and they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, which was the Baptist church that, uh, that uh, uh, saw him through to the end of his life. And that rebuilding, in 1861, they moved into the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and that could seat 6,000 people, but it was never enough. People were always teeming, always climbing, always behind. And when they were at the Surrey Garden Music Hall, now this, this caused like no small controversy because, because the Surrey Garden Music Hall was built for uh, zoo escapades and circus events and, uh, and all kinds of uh, very worldly, very silly. It was a beer garden at one point. Like it, it, was like, it was kind of like the Ecker of London. And, and when he had announced to his people that the deacons were trying to procure a, a rental tenancy over there, the, the religious people of London hated it. They despised it. They thought that that was so unholy and, uh, and sacrilegious, and they, they ripped him to shreds in the, in the press. But he pressed on because with a greater crowd, there was a greater opportunity to see souls saved, which was the only thing that Spurgeon cared about. So at Exeter Hall, he had 4,000 people. They would do their, their morning service at uh, New Park Street and then their, their uh, evening service for a period there at Exeter Hall. Uh, uh, and, and, and what he was known for was his zealous gospel clarity. You need to know that as a Reformed Baptist, uh, it was very uncommon, even in the Reformation-leaning denominations, to be an outspoken Calvinist. It was far too old-fashioned, even back then. It was far too unpopular, and it would not win the modern mind. This is a century something after the, the great enlightenment, they call it, when we, when we rediscovered and reapplied rationalism and the, and, 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 and the strength and the purity of, of the thinking mind of humanity. We don't need these ancient uh, 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 religious texts to think right anymore. And here's Spurgeon with the ancient, ancient truths of, of God's divine sovereignty in all things, uh, but by many, just soft liberal pastors, and by others who are Arminians, he he was called a hyper-Calvinist, basically meaning he doesn't preach the gospel freely to people because he'll only ever evangelize the elect, right? But for the actual hyper-Calvinist, and Spurgeon spent a great deal of his time in his pen mocking, I was going to say debating, but hardly any of it was debating. Most of it was just mocking the idiocy of the hyper-Calvinists. And he, would t- he was a hilarious man who used the, the pulpit as a, as, as a joking platform at those who would stand against uh, the gospel and the momentum of the gospel, as well as against the doctrines of the gospel. And so the, the Arminians and the liberals thought that he was a hyper-Calvinist. The hyper-Calvinists didn't want him because he would just make open, sweeping statements that any of you who are sinners can come to Jesus right now and be saved. And they were appalled by that kind of, that kind of loose handling of the gospel. It's, it's like throwing the blood of Jesus to swine. In these years, uh, that is, in the church, not all across the place, in the first few years, Spurgeon says that I counted no less than 1,000 souls saved and added to our number. 
So, so he, was, he wasn't fast and loose with his counting. He didn't say, I saw 400 hands go up at the youth rally, and I saw 100 people look like they were really moved at the, at the evangelistic uh, meeting that we did. No, he, he counted souls as saved who had, been convert, who had had an experience of conversion and had spoken to somebody in their church and then had been recommended for baptism and then had been interviewed by, by an elder and actually baptized and usually upon baptism added into the fellowship of the membership. That's how he counted souls saved. He was not cheap. He was not looking for numbers. And there was a thousand people in 1857 that he could count. And he says, at least 1857. It was Spurgeon's conviction that his church was in the midst of a great spiritual awakening. He was, he was convinced that what God was doing was, was greater in proportion than what can usually be seen around the place. And he was convinced that God's blessing was upon the ministry in a particularly powerful way. He would, in fact, use that as an argument against people who were not giving their life to Christ. He would say to them from the pulpit, Unbelief makes you sit here in times of revival and in times of the outpouring of God's grace, and you are unmoved, uncalled, and unsaved. He said, I do think that many an old Puritan would jump out of his grave if he knew what was going on now. He spoke at the end of uh, one year, I believe it was 55, and he said, this year has been a year of miracles. He said, church, tell it to the wide world. Tell it everywhere. 210 persons have been added to our membership in this last year alone. Half the churches in London can't even count 250 people in their membership at all, and we've added that amount just in the last half of this year. Yet the Lord, has, the Lord continues to bring so many in our midst, and they keep coming. Great numbers of the convicts of those early years, he says, came in as a direct result of the slanders with which I was mercilessly, mercilessly assailed. Now we move into the other really colorful, controversial part of Spurgeon's early ministry in London was the incessant attacks and criticisms that other jealous pastors and uh, empty-headed uh, crit critics from London and the religious leadership would make as they were looking on in Spurgeon's ministry. What's the, what's the saying? The, it's the empty barrels that make the most noise. So these empty-headed, empty-ministry pastors would pile up their criticism against him, often in the press. Here's what one man said about Spurgeon in those early years, and then they started renting Exeter Hall, which was a music hall, quite sacrilegious. He says, huge numbers throng to Exeter Hall. Mr. Spurgeon, however, preaches nothing but himself. He's nothing except for a useless actor indulging in coarse familiarity with holy things, declaiming in a ranting and colloquial style, meaning in modern language, in ways that everybody can understand, in ways that you talk with them at the pub like, just, just in the same ranting and colloquial style, strutting up and down the platforms, right? They don't like walking preachers. Declaiming in a ranting way, walking up and down the platform as though he was in a theater, it would seem that the poor young man's brain is turned bad by the notoriety he has acquired and the incense offered at his shrine. To their credit, Mr. Spurgeon receives no countenance or encouragement from the Baptist denomination. Right? They didn't like him. They didn't give attention to him. They tried to separate themselves from him. And, and here's the, the guy in one of the big newspapers saying, good on them for separating themselves from him. He is a nine days wonder, a comet, 
that has suddenly shot across the religious atmosphere. He's gone up like a rocket, but he'll come down like a stick. Why would you hope that? Another one said, I have most solemnly, uh, uh, I have, rather it says, I have, most solemnly have, my doubts to the divine reality of Spurgeon's conversion. He opens the, up the article saying, I've never been there, I've never met the guy, but I heard about a sermon that he preached where he mentioned his conversion, and I, I solemnly doubt it. He says, fatally deluded people may enjoy his acting, but not benefit spiritually. No one knows Christ No one who knows Christ truly or who is indwelt by the Spirit could hear with any prophet the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That's Reverend James Wells. He says uh, (laughs) in a follow-up article, a very short one, he says this, I am credibly informed that Mr. Spurgeon himself intends taking no notice of what I have written. (laughs) Correct. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Here's how Spurgeon responded to his criticisms, which were weekly in the newspapers. Just, and some of them were just abject lies. Like, like he gets up and before every sermon, he just reminds the single ladies down front, I'm engaged, please don't come and give me all of your attention and frolic around me. Because, because the young girls back in those days, one of the ways you would show you were sexually available would be to sit in public and slip a shoe off, sort of to show, hey, come, come and engage me. And, and he had the young women all in the front of his rows and he would have to start every sermon with, I know I'm just irresistible but please yeah completely made up these people would just would just ravage his reputation he said this is how he responded to the newspaper printings criticizing him he collected the paper clippings and would say there's one more for my collection and then he gave them to his wife in a big box and she published them in his autobiography He did say at the early time when his reputation was being slaughtered, he he fell on his knees and submitted even now his character to God. He said to God, I thought I had given up everything, but my reputation was still left. If I must lose this also, then I let it go. It's the dearest thing in the world to me, for a good name is better than riches, but it shall go if, like my master, they shall say I have a devil or am mad or am a drunk. And then later on, as he was counseling people who were uh, other pastors, he would be lecturing them and people were asking, how do you respond to this sort of criticism? He says, well, what matter is it? He says, young men, are you striving to do good and do others impute wrong motives to you? Do not be particular about answering them. Just go straight on and your own life will be the best refutation of the calumny. If any man desires to reply to the false assertions of his enemies, he need not say a word. Just let him go and keep on doing good. That will be his best answer. I am the subject of untold detraction. But if I can point to, but I can point to hundreds of souls that have, that have been saved by my feeble instrumentality. And my reply to all my enemies is this. You may say what you like. You may find fault with the manner and, uh, uh, matter and manner of my preaching. But God saves souls by it, and I will hold up that fact like a giant Goliath severed head to show you that though my preaching is only like David's sling and stone, God has thereby gotten the victory. What a legend. That's two years into his his pastorate at the age of 21. He writes this in an article. They, They asked for a response, and he published it. He says, While the thousands are unable to get into the doors of my church to hear the gospel, The opinions of a penny aligner is of no consequence to me. 
a penny a liner. That's, that's the article writers who would get a penny per line they write. The opinions of a penny a liner have no consequence to me. However, uh, he, he says, many people would come who had formerly been severe slanderers, and when they came, they were more than often saved. So the, he says that in this first discussion he was having with one guy as an example, uh, he had he been saved and he, uh, Spurgeon himself was interviewing the man for salvation and the, the guy says to him, I just need to start out, I'm extremely, extremely sorry, will you ever forgive me? He goes, what on earth for? He goes, I used my name in the publishing, I used my, uh, my, my, my arms in the, in the print, I did everything I could to slander you and there was no word in the English language that was too mean and horrible for me to use for you. Spurgeon said, I don't care. Let's get you baptized. You've confessed your sin to God. <laughs> many, many of these uh, 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 attackers would become saved, but there was a time in his ministry in 1856, again, only two and a half years into his ministry, which brought him the lowest that he had ever been in his life. This was, in fact, the very first night of their renting the Surrey Garden musicals. For weeks and months, the religious leaders and the newspapers had been uh, cutting down Spurgeon, saying that it's such an unholy act to do, to take church to to Vegas kind of idea, you know, to to take church to the Surrey Garden Music Halls. God's against it. God's going to judge him. He's such an unholy man. And on the first night, 12,000 people gathered to hear the words of salvation. It was about six to 10,000 people could be seated there, maybe a few more if you shove them in, but 12,000 people were waiting outside to be admitted uh, before the doors were even opened. They all came in to hear the words of salvation. Somebody who recounts this dreadful night says that Spurgeon opened up with a few words that were very appropriate. He led everybody in a hymn that was very gospel-centered, he began a prayer, which was pastoral and moving. He then gave a Bible reading with a few commentating uh, 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 phrases as he went, which was his pattern. And then they read the scriptures, and then he started his sermon. But halfway through his sermon, there was a choir of voices that exploded from the galleries. Think of these multi-leveled galleries that are all old Victorian wood and some metal, this enormous uh, music hall, and people exploded from different areas of it all at once. And the writer says it's as if they had been practicing it for weeks and weeks. In unison, they cried out, fire! And another group of people cried out, the galleries are collapsing! And another cried out, the roof is coming down! which sounds like a bit of a, a college guy prank, except that it started a rush of people out the back door that created a trampling effect on many who were there. And there were that night seven killed. It was 28 hospitalized and seriously injured, maimed for life, but seven people had died. Now Spurgeon, being such a great distance from the back door and up on the, up on the, uh, up on the, the, the stage and behind the pulpit preaching, he couldn't quite see exactly what was going on. And so by his booming voice, he calms everybody. He brings them back in. There's obviously no fire. Somebody's tried to have a go at us. And he continues preaching. And it's not until the, towards the end of his sermon as, as people start screaming again and he calms them down and, and then as he sits down in his seat uh, wondering uh, what happened and obviously being annoyed because his first sermon in the Surrey Garden Musicals was interrupted by some, by some brutes, he's told by one of the deacons there's, there's people screaming and dying out on the lawn and in the hallways while you were preaching. 
and he literally just has a nervous fit, something that would have looked like, a, like an apoplexy or a stroke, and he is hardly even uh, uh, able to respond. He spends two weeks in his house, not talking to people. His wife says of this time he was crying for hours and hours every day, hardly sleeping, not taking food. It was as low in his spiritual life as he has ever gotten. He said that he doubted he would ever preach again. The criticisms of everybody that had said God was against this man, this foolish decision, seemed like they were right as he went over the screams and the yells and, the, and what would have seemed like such a flippant young man up on stage, just keep on preaching. He was taken so, so low. And then he writes, Then came the slander of many, barefaced fabrications, libelous insinuations, and barbarous accusations. The media, who had already lived to slander Spurgeon, pounced on this and attacked him with blame. One writer says in a newspaper, There is scarcely a minister in London who is associated with this man. There's no support from him from what we consider leaders in the religious world. The Surrey Gardens affair was a great coup. The deplorable accident in which seven people lost their lives and scores more were maimed, mutilated, and otherwise cruelly injured, Mr. Spurgeon merely considers as an additional intervention of providence in his favor. This event, Spurgeon says in one of his first sermons back as he is just enabled by God to retake the pulpit, he says, this event, I trust, teach us the necessity of... And this newspaper writer says, what, what lesson does Spurgeon take? That they should be more sober, rational, and decent? He says, no. Spurgeon says that this lesson is that they must have a building of our own. Great, says the writer. Preach another crowd into a frenzy of terror so that you can do what? Kill and smash a dozen or two more? This was the kind of thing that was coming against him in the print and in the media. He said, Never since the day of my conversion, when I was outside of Christ, still guilty in sin, never since that day had I known so much of his infinite... Uh, sorry, after God came to him, uh, in, this, in this moment in the garden, he's, he's at the lowest he's ever been. He feels as if he's in pure night with no sun. God gives to him in a response to prayer, and no doubt countless thousands praying for him. God simply gives to him what he calls a miracle, a moment of lifting. He just felt sure that God's grace was towards him, absolutely positive of the promises in Scripture, and that God would turn this for good. He says, Never since the day of my conversion had I known so much of his infinite excellence. Never had my spirit left I felt with such an adorable delight. My soul is absorbed in the one idea of his glorious exaltation and divine compassion. And God empowered him the next Sunday to take the pulpit. Last thing we're going to see from his life before we move to what lessons can we learn is this. That Spurgeon saw the secret of his ministry, and it would go on for decades, and countless thousands of people being saved, and hundreds and thousands of ministers being sent out, and churches being planted, and orphans being housed, and the city being benefited. He said that the secret to his success was that he had a praying church. He was a man of extraordinary physical and spiritual ability. His 
physical ability was extraordinary. His mind was out of this world as a reader and a, and a thought, uh, 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 as a thinker. But also his spiritual gifting was stupendous. However, he said, human effort and ministry zeal cannot produce what only God's spirit can. He said to his congregation one night, Brethren, all of these things that we do can be done. And we will cry to the Lord until he reveals his face again. He, he says, if God was to ever stop blessing us, we would cry out to God for him to give, his give us his face again. All we want is the Spirit of God. Dear Christian friends, go home and pray for it. Give yourselves no rest till God reveals himself. Do not tarry where you are. Do not be content to go on uh, in your everlasting jog trot as you have done. Do not be content with the mere round of formalities in church. Awake, Zion, awake, awake, awake. He told his congregation one time, please tell me the day that you plan to stop praying for me because that will be the last day that I ever preach. And that will be the day that I ask God to send me to the tomb because I would rather die than preach a single sermon without a blessing from heaven. And this blessing only comes by prayer. He once ran into an American Presbyterian minister who, who asked him, just, he said, I only want a few moments of your time. Give me the secret. How do you see so much blessing everywhere you go in all of your ministry? And Spurgeon's simple answer was, my people pray for me. He would speak of the church in general, and he said, Lord, send thy churchmen filled with the... Oh, sir, let me re-say that. Lord, send thy church men who are filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Give to any denomination such men, and its progress will be mighty. But keep back such men. Send them college gentlemen of great refinement and profound learning, but of little fire and grace... Dumb dogs which cannot bark, and straight away that denomination much, must decline. He spoke to his own people and saying, the work that is done in their midst could become abominations to God if we were not reliant on prayer. He says, without the Lord, our Sabbath days are abominations, such as his soul hateth. May this church always feel her utter, entire, absolute dependence on the Spirit of our God. And may she never cease to humbly implore Him to forgive her many sins, but still to command the blessing to abide upon her. Amen. There's lessons that we need to take, especially from these early years of Spurgeon's young years in the ministry, as he was early in his life and young in the ministry as well. Some of the lessons are the way that we think about revival. Spurgeon lived through the 1859 revival, which started in America and even crept over to England. And he spoke some things of it that were great to see. And he said, the Lord has blessed us. He has given revival to our lands. But he never at any point tried to piggyback off of it. He never tried to uh, 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 stir people up into a frenzy that he might be able to later call revival. He just lived it. It was continual. And, and one thing that was especially central to Spurgeon's thought of revival is he preached this sermon in 1859. And he said that revival has marks. It's the Holy Spirit who leads it, but there's marks to revival. And it is always this, a man of God inflamed, or, or multiple men of God, but preachers, ministers who are inflamed with the gospel and preach it clearly. And then people who frequent the house of God and hear the gospel as often as possible and pray for a blessing. And then thirdly, sinners who come and are saved by giving their life to Christ and placing their faith in Him. Now that's, 
might sound really, really uh, 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 impressive if you say it impressively, but you can just sort of tone it down and go, hang on, that's just church. That's just Spurgeon's view of church. Preach, listen with faith, receive Christ by faith. That's pretty ordinary. But that's all that Spurgeon's view of revival was. It was, it was not something extraordinary. It was the ordinary means of grace turned up to 11. That was Spurgeon's idea of revival. And I think it needs to be ours. It was not an event, it was not a spark, it was not a flash in the pan, not a phenomenon, but a burning sun that moves slowly through the course of the sky and gives life and light to everything it touches. That's what Spurgeon believed. So here's how we can apply principles from Spurgeon's ministry and the way that God blessed him to our own selves here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Number one, or let me say overarchingly, let every person who calls this church their home Join the pastors, and, and as the teaching elder, as, as preacher, I want to especially plead, join me as soul winners. I think you can do that in three primary ways. Number one, pray for the sermon. I'm not one of those congregationalist pastors that are so strong on we're all equals that would say, mm, the sermon is no more powerful than you, you sharing a tract or you sharing the word over a coffee. I know the ordinary uh, 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 people of God are blessed by the Spirit of God to preach and evangelize all of the time. That is absolutely true. But, but I'm preaching Ephesians. I'll, I'll preach on the, on the church. The, what I see in Scripture is that God especially, and we see this in Spurgeon's ministry, especially blesses the preaching of the Word in the gathered Sundays. So, as you pray in general, in your, in your family worship, in your devotional times, in your fellowship groups, Pray especially for the upcoming Sunday's sermons that Aspersion was so confident of. His ministry zeal was nothing if the Spirit was not there to penetrate hearts. So please pray for the sermon. Secondly, populate the sermon. I'm trying to do some alliteration here. Populate the sermon. That means at least yourself be here, of course. But secondly, try and bring just one person every week, or, or, or start easy, one person a fortnight from work or church or family, uh, church, uh, work or family or, or, or a neighbor or a friend, wherever it is, just try and bring one person a fortnight to one of the four services we have. To do that would bring immediate amazing growth and immediate uh, population of the hearing of the word of God that we sing, pray, and preach so that there is more and multiplying opportunity for God to save people. So pray for the sermon intentionally. Populate the sermon by bringing them and improve on the sermon. I've spoken about this before, that improving on the sermon can sometimes be that in groups we go away and pull apart the text and apply it even deeper to our lives. As another way that Spurgeon would talk about improving the sermon, and that is with people that you don't even necessarily know. But look for people who may not be regular. Look for people who may not be already going to a fellowship group this week. Look for people who are new and try and corner them and try and ask them what, and keep their mind on the matters that was just preached about and just worship to God about. Try and, try and utilize the Sunday gathering while people are still so, so raw with the experience of God's word that you would you utilize that to continually ask them about the sermon. There's, there, there was a, a, a couple of deacons that Spurgeon had and he called them his watchdogs. No, no, his hunting dogs, sorry his hounds. They would sort of sit in the galleries of the church and they would, they would watch over the crowds and they would take notes on, of how many seats in on that row they are and, and look for people who are crying 
or look for people whose head were in their hands or who were shaking or who looked moved and they would send out their men, third row, fourth from the back, woman with the glasses, go. And, and the beagles would run, these bloodhounds would run and try and catch the people and speak to them. Be the hounds. Or there was another man who would stand out on the street about a block away from the church and his especial attack was young men, probably mostly because he's in a dark road approaching people at night time. But his, his, his method would be to see men who were coming out that he knew weren't Christians or, or didn't know them to be regulars and he would corner them or, or, or just start walking alongside them and say, gents, would you like to go and get a tea and, and talk about what you just heard? Or, or what do you think about that? And, and he would re-rail them. Spurgeon said that they, they leave the sermon and the devil quickly goes to take the seed off the ground. He derails their thoughts of God and, and he had a deacon out on the street who would re-rail them and bring them back to the, to the, to the, to the uh, station of salvation. How, how might you be able to do that? Pray for the sermon especially, populate the sermon with people and improve upon it by always bringing the themes up again in conversation and especially to those whose souls need to be won. Can you um, stand up? We're going to pray. I'm going to pray. I want you uh, amening, of course, in your heart, and then we'll, we'll, we'll split up. James will have a, a group down here. Uh, uh, I will take a group back up in the corner, and Keith will go over to the corner over here. Three, sh maybe we'll need four. Uh, we'll see how we go. Uh, but we'll, we'll have a, a few groups that we can uh, just uh, be in. There'll, there'll be some slides that will come up eventually, but uh, praying for the matters and the ministries of the church, and, of course, praying for our missionaries and praying for our loved ones who are not yet saved that we hope to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me pray. Father God, if we hear the words of Spurgeon as a teacher that you gave to the church and we learn anything, it is that no one benefits from being more like Spurgeon. No one benefits from having more Spurgeon books on the shelf or sermons memorized if it does not mean that we are more reliant, desperately, utterly reliant on the Holy Spirit for the ministry of the church. Father God, as a pastor and a preacher, you make this acutely aware to me that the, the preaching of the word and the, the leadership of the church is nothing without a people that are respondent and a people that are sensitive to the leading of the spirit. Father God, I, I pray that you would therefore make us all together as a corporate body, not just as professionals and lay people or not just as the, uh, the, the, the members and, and, and the regular people, but as all of us who are engaged in this body this church body, would you build all of us up into maturity? Would you give to all of us a burden for souls so that we are seeking them, inviting them, speaking to them, and of course, praying for them, Lord? Would you please be, be gracious enough to look on our humble attempts at ministry and our humble attempts for obedience, and would you empower us? And Lord God, would you command a blessing? Would you give to, to those who, who share the gospel and to those who study the Bible in fellowship groups, and to, to us who preach the Bible, Lord God, would you give to all of us a blessing that your Spirit takes our human words and drives it into the heart to bring forth souls that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Lord God, build up this holy temple that we call Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Please, please uh, brighten the flame that burns within us so that the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. And hear our prayers as we call out to you now. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk.
thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.